prayer to ask him to help us and to help us to see the blessing that is here in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are God and we are not. Your ways are not our ways. All of your ways are good and are fitting with your perfect and holy character. Lord, when we come to parts of your word that don't fit us, the things that we prefer or that we'd like to hear, the problem isn't with you. The problem is with our limited understanding of, of who you are and, and what your holiness and your perfection is like. But also, too, sometimes our elevated view of who we are Lord, help us to see your good plans and purposes, your good character. Help us to see and experience the blessing that you promised through this book of Revelation. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. Change us and form us to be more like your son, Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Now, it's not that unusual as you're reading your way through newspapers or even they be online, that you'll come across a heading that talks about a way in which they believe the world is going to come to an end. Sometimes it's something obscure and a little bit quirky. Sometimes it's someone believing that there's going to be a zombie apocalypse and there are people who believe that's going to be a reality. Or that aliens are going to invade our world and, and to come and abduct us and take over. But then sometimes you might read through something that seems really well analysed, really well thought through from an astrologist who's kind of pictured and mapped things and it appears that a big meteor is going to come and strike the earth and wipe it out. Or more recently, we've heard a lot of very bold statements about climate. People making claims that if we don't do something, the human race is going to go into extinction in a very short period of time. But do you know what I think God would say to those who have those theories about climate, meteors, zombies, aliens? He would say, how dare you? How dare you presume that the course of human history is going to come to ends in a way that suggests that there is no God, there's no God in control? How dare you think that mankind and our actions are somehow going to be the things which bring our world to an end or not. But not only do these theories have those two problems that they say there's no God in control or suggest that ultimately the world's history is in the hands of humanity. Have you noticed that all of those theories, as gloomy as they are, they have no glimpse of hope in them whatsoever. They just talk about a day when it's all over and there's nothing more. But God's plan has an end for this world, has a plan for this world, but it's not a plan that is void of hope. As we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, we've seen how it talks about human history from Jesus' first coming all the way through to his second coming from different angles, different perspectives, describing the same common human experiences the struggles, the troubles that we have in this world. It allows us to see something behind what we see with our eyes to the spiritual realities going on behind him that are causing these things to fall into place. 
The battle between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. And in the middle of that, there's a strong message to those who belong to Christ to remain faithful. Your God, your King is reigning. Your King is in control. Your King will bring an end to all things that set themselves up in opposition to Him and His kingdom. The world we see around us and that we've seen throughout history is not chaos. It's not out of control. It's in the hands of a God who has all power, who has a plan for human history, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming and his second. And sometimes even what appears to the eye to be the triumph of evil, that it might seem to the eye to be the weakness of God, actually God is working for his triumph and for the defeat of all evil. In that sense, it's not too dissimilar to the cross. As Jesus hung there on the cross, it looked like evil had triumphed. It looked like God was weak and was defeated. But as Jesus rode on that third day, we saw he was the great victor. He had conquered sin, death and Satan. Paul describes it this way as he wrote to the Colossians, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We all had a debt. All of us were guilty before God. And as Jesus bore our guilt, bore our shame, bore our punishment of death upon that cross, he has disarmed the powers who would say that these people are not worthy of you. We are clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. He has put them to open shame, showing that he is the Almighty One. He has triumphed over all rule, power and authority. And as we work our way through the book of Revelation, we see kind of Satan in his death throes, knowing his days are numbered, trying to deceive, trying to persecute those who belong to the kingdom of Christ. Sometimes the way we see his opposition described in these books is quite disastrous. But are all of these things that we see that sound a little bit difficult to listen to interspersed through that we see words like and he was permitted or it was given that even the things that happen are happening not only with his authority but with the authority and permission of God who's working out his good plans for this world and for its history now at this point in time you're probably getting a little bit sick of hearing wrath and judgment week after week because there's been quite a lot of it in the book of Revelation. The good news is today might be close to the end of it. There's a little bit at the end of chapter 19, which Samuel will be um, looking at again in a couple of weeks. But then we get to see something of the beautiful picture of the new heavens, the new earth. The very reason why it is worth enduring. We see the victory of Christ. But still, speaking of wrath and judgment is important for two reasons. One is that every single one of us will go on for eternity. 
Every single one of us will stand before God and be judged. Either standing before him in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that he has paid for our our sin on our behalf, or standing before him, realising that we need to take our punishment for ourselves. But it also gives us confidence as we know that God will bring about his perfect justice. That as we see the things going on in our world, he will make all things right. As we work our way through these two chapters, we see a glimpse of the Exodus in chapter 15. We see God's wrath as expression of his holiness, his truth and his justice. We see the tragic state of hard hearts in verses 8 to 11. It speaks of a war which will end all wars in verses 12 to 16. And then finally in verses 17 to 21, the wrath of God is finished. So a glimpse of Exodus. We're looking at two chapters even though we read only chapter 16. And throughout these two chapters, you see a lot of things that remind you very heavily of what happened as God saved his people out of Egypt that we read about in the book of Exodus. Now, God's people were there being treated as slaves. They were oppressed. And God acted on behalf of his people. He judged and he disciplined those who were oppressing his people. He saved his people. He opened up. The Red Sea, his people passed through the Red Sea while those seas closed and swallowed the Egyptians who were in pursuit. We saw throughout the ten plagues that preceded that, the way in which God judged the people, but their hearts remained hardened towards him. But as God's people stood on the other side of that sea, they sang a song of praise. They sang a song of praise for their God who was their deliverer. Last week we were introduced to three enemies of God's people. A dragon representing Satan. A beast, a collective picture of all who would set themselves up in opposition to Christ and oppose God's people. And a false prophet bearing signs and dealing, making it difficult for Christians to deal and prosper economically. In Revelation 15, we see a description of those who conquered that beast, singing that very same song that the Israelites sang when they crossed the waters. That song of Moses, of God's deliverance. But unlike the display of God's judgment we read about in Exodus, When we read about these seven bowls, we don't talk about things in part. We talk about completion. The wrath of God being finished, it says in verse 1. These are the last with which the wrath of God is finished. Now as we've worked our way through the book of Revelation, we've seen the return of Christ and the final judgment described on three separate occasions. Chapter 6. 11 and 14 again today and we'll see it again but as we've spoken about when we looked at camera one the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments they were all sort of partial they were almost like a a forewarning a, a glimpse of a greater and grander judgment which was to come 
But as we begin to look at these seven bowls, the language of one-third or part gives way to complete and universal. The form of the partial judgments remind us of what Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 1.18, saying the wrath of God is presently being revealed against all unrighteousness. And as God's wrath is shown throughout the world, throughout history in a smaller, lesser scale, it's designed, Paul tells us, God's patience, not giving us what we deserve immediately, was designed that we would come to him, lead us to repentance. God hasn't given the world what we deserve yet, and there are three reasons. One, God has appointed a number of people who will come to trust in him. In Revelation 6, the martyrs asked the question, how long until you vindicate our blood? And the answer they were given, not until the full number of those who must die for my name. In Acts chapter 17, Paul speaks of God who has appointed a day. He has set a day in stone in which he will return to judge the living and the dead. As we think about these things, we think about a God who's in total control. A God who is bringing all rebellious opposition to him to an end. As you read through the Old Testament, you will won't help but notice every nation or every power or every individual who rises up in opposition to God is brought down in God's justice. Egypt was no exception. God sent the plagues through Moses. God delivered his people. But even when you read these things, it's undeniable. The plagues, the judgments that we've read throughout Revelation aren't just coincidences. They are things which come from the very hand and permission of God. So we move to chapter 16. These seven bowls or seven plagues as they are described in which the wrath of God is finished. There's no escaping. They are commanded. They are commissioned from God himself. Who else commands the angels? As the angels speak about these events, they say, you are holy and just. They acknowledge this is the judgment of God himself. Now one thing which can be difficult as you read through these things, you think, I know this is a different type of literature. Should we read these particular judgments and think this is a concrete description of what these judgments will look like? Certainly when you read through Exodus, which is historical narrative, you think, yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what happened. But in an apocalyptic book, does it mean that these things happen exactly the way they are described? They might do, they might not either. They are certainly a depiction of a very real reality, a very real judgment which God will bring, but whether they will take place the way they're described here or if they're symbolic, I'm not sure. The first as the bowl is poured out, says painful sores or boils came upon not everybody, but specifically only upon those who had the mark of the beast, who worshipped the beast. And you'll notice that goes in complete contrast to those who are marked, those who belong to God, who have been protected, who have his mark, 
seems that it's universal for those who belong to the beast. But as he's expressed, as we looked earlier, those who are marked as his own were protected. As the second bowl is poured out, we see the sea became like blood. Again, we see some echoes going back to what happened in Egypt. We see some echoes which go back to the, the seven trumpets. One of the trumpets says, one third of the sea became like blood. But now this language of, of partial gives way to universal and everything living in it also died. The third bowl was poured out and the rivers and springs turned to blood. Again, that which was only one third in the trumpets back in chapter 8 is now complete in all of its entirety. Now, as we've read through these things over the past weeks, there have got to be some things that have kind of think, that doesn't fit, sit real comfortable with me. It kind of maybe even feels a little cringeworthy, the extent of some of the things that are described. But even the most mature Christian you will ever meet will say, there is so much about God I just don't understand. There's so much about his word I don't understand. But look at the way in which an angel, who's safe to presume knows far better than either you or I ever will, having seen these things described, he says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This angel doesn't say, God, settle down, you're going too harsh. This is, this is out of line. He says, you are just. As in, you are entirely fair. You are holy. There's nothing against your pure character in the things which you are doing. And while the angel picks up on the, the blood that's been shed of the saints and the prophets, which that in itself was serious enough. What about the rebellion and hostility that that sinful mankind is showed against God. To disown him. To reject him. To not be for him effectively is to hate him. A way that I've begun to start thinking about it, particularly throughout this week, to think about sin and the nature of how horrific it is. Effectively it is to take the life breath and energy which God gives us and use that to express hostility and hate towards him. That's, that's sin really. To take the life and breath and energy God gives us because God gives us everything and to take what he gives us to express hostility, independence and hatred towards him. And when you kind of reflect on the gravity of sin to that extent, it kind of is understandable why in verse 7 the angels reaffirm, yeah, you are, you are true, you are just. And when you think of it that way and you get a grip of how horrific our offence is against God, it's almost hard to comprehend how anyone would think it would be unfair in the way in which he acts. But such is the hard heart of sinful mankind that we're about to see in verses 8 to 11. As the coming of the fourth ball, the sun, it scorches people with fire. Literal or, or not, or symbolic, certainly a very certain judgment coming from God. 
But we see a contrast to the people of God. As we saw that great multitude describe in chapter 7, said, They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. But the most horrific thing is the response of those who were the recipients of God's judgment. The things that were designed to lead them to repentance, they knew it had come from God. They recognised it had come from God. And they cursed God. They didn't repent. They didn't give him glory. They'd seen such a display of power. They knew it came from God. And they cursed him. Such is the heart that is hardened to God. Can recognise something comes from God. Can recognise God exists. Can recognise his power. But have nothing but hatred towards him. We see that again as the fifth bowl is poured out, which isn't even poured out on people, but poured out upon the beast. It is that anything which has been empowered by Satan to set itself up in opposition to God and his kingdom and particularly to, to express its hatred and hostility and to kill even those who belong to the kingdom of Christ. This kingdom was plunged into darkness. It wasn't completely wiped out at this stage, plunged into darkness. And as we compare, look back to the Exodus before the death of the firstborn, which finally led the final plague, which led to the, the release of God's people. What was the ninth before that? Darkness fell upon that land. Now, for the Egyptians, they believed very strongly in a sun god, and they thought that Pharaoh was the expression of Ra, that sun god. And here was God's display saying, Here's your darkness. Where's your power now? And in response, these people see the very things that they thought was the things they pinned all of their hopes on, all of their trust upon, instead of Christ. It was being put into darkness. It was being put into, it was being threatened. To them, it just seemed so inconceivable, a thing that they had placed all of their hope in, all they thought was their powerful escape, the thing to put all of their trust. They were so desperate that the thought that that could be faltering it's an unusual term. They gnawed at their tongues. Isn't that a most gross description? To gnaw at your tongues. Again, they cursed God for dealing a blow against this thing which they'd held to so seriously. Even though he demonstrated superior power, they still didn't repent. But take a moment to be clear about this as a Christian, because we think we're superior, because we're not. <laughs> a Christian basically means you recognise that you needed God because you were desperately wicked. I needed God because I was desperately wicked. But if you are pinning your hopes on anything else other than Jesus Christ, you can guarantee on the word of God, it will come to nothing. It may even seem like the very thing you think you need that feels like the thing that you must have, the thing that feels the most secure, it will come to nothing. It will leave you with nothing. Whatever that is. Now we have good gifts in this world. You want to know why we have good gifts in this world? 
because we have a good God who gives good gifts. Don't, don't put all your focus on the good gifts, but upon the God who gives the good gifts. And as the beasts are threatened, we see a war takes place, one final attempt to destroy God's people. So we read the sixth bowl. When you first read it, you think, oh, so what? A river dries up, that's, and some kings come across. That seems pretty light. But we touched on the nature of the Euphrates River last week. For the Romans' perspective in the first century when this was being written, that was their eastern border of their empire. They were always concerned that the Parthians one day would come in and attack and conquer them. From the Jewish mindset, it was the place which the Assyrians and the Babylonians came across, conquered them and took them out to their own land. The image of powers coming to wage war and to conquer. And while many want to make things about a geographical place or particular kings or particular nations east of a particular location, in verse 14... These kings from the east are also described as the kings of the whole world. What we see here is this unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet performing their great signs, building a great following, bringing together all of the kings of the world in this one final battle to try and destroy God's people. You see, there's an element of of pride and arrogance. We are going to wipe out Christianity forever. It says they are assembled for battle, is what you would have in most of your translations. Literally, it says, gathered for the war. The one final war. While there's all the language and indications of from those who oppose God's people of a confident defeat of the kingdom of Christ, then there's this subtle, just side note from Jesus. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In the middle of their proud arrogance, Jesus says, I am coming. I'm coming like a thief, not to take things. I am coming when you do not expect. Make sure you are prepared with your garments on. Now, he's not talking about whether or not you've got clothes on, you don't want to get caught rudy nudy. It goes back to what Jesus said to one of the churches back in Revelation 3. He says, I counsel you, this is the church of Laodicea, buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your oil eyes so that you may see. He says, there's only one preparation that will have you ready for my return, and that needs to come from God. It needs to be the righteousness which comes from God, the righteousness of Christ given to us as we turn to him in repentance and faith. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. In that transaction, God sees us as the very righteousness of Christ. We don't want to face death. We don't want to face the return of Christ, standing before him, clothed in nothing more than our best attempts to live a good life. 
And the, the fourth and final description of final judgment in Revelation, we got it in verses 17 to 21. This bowl is thrown into the air, not necessarily in a careless fling, just see where it goes, possibly linked with that language, the way that Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. There's many descriptions here of the heavens being shaken, the earth being shaken. But everything which does not belong to Christ and his kingdom, we judged and brought to nothing. We see a picture of Babylon who throughout all of the Bible is representative of all human efforts to stand in independence against God, to make a name for ourselves, to shake the fist at God saying, we don't need you, we are powerful on our own. We see the picture of the islands which used in the Old Testament language of those pagan Gentiles, of mountains that spoken of nations and great powers, all of them brought to nothing. Chapter 15 and 1 began by saying, in these seven bowls, the wrath of God is finished. And as the seventh bowl is poured out, verse 17, we have the words, it is done. So what? Well, it's been quite an intense few weeks in the book of Revelation. And if you've got even the slightest sense that this is God's word, then you can't for a moment think that God hasn't got a plan. You can't for a moment to think that me living a good life is going to be good enough. You can't for a moment think that that any individual human being will not stand before him and give an account for what we've done, what we, how we've responded to his offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Rejection of God isn't a minor issue. It's not about saying, well, this is, what you, this is your preference, this is mine, I'll just do things a little bit different. Sin is, as we said, is taking the life breath and energy which God has given us and using that in opposition, hostility and hatred towards him. You know how sometimes you're down at a shopping centre and you see a kid yelling at their parents, saying horrific things toward their parents and you're just appalled. How can a kid say, speak like that to their parents? You want to know something? That's not even a glimpse of what human sin against a perfect and holy God looks like. When we say, I don't need you, get out of my life, I'm doing things my own way. To say that to a God who's done nothing but pour out his goodness, his grace, wanted to make his name, wanted to share his blessings with us. We deserve to die. And that's exactly where we were headed. But our God says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, sends his son Jesus Christ into the world specifically to be our saviour. The one who knew no sin became our sin. He bore our sin on the cross. He suffered the full wrath of God on our behalf so that all who would come before him in repentance and faith would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Enter into to be called his own children. 
to dwell in eternity with him and with all of his blessings, to escape these horrific things that we've been describing these last number of weeks. The book says it comes to bring blessing to those who hear it, those who read it, and those who put it into practice. If in reading these difficult chapters these last few weeks gives you a grander picture of the nature of human sin, that's probably a good thing. If seeing something of the shocking nature of our sin leads you to give thanks to Jesus Christ that he has done what we could never have done, that's a blessed thing. If it leads you to turn to him, ask him to forgive you for your rebellion, knowing that he says he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, you'll be clothed in his righteousness. You'll enjoy your rest in him and his blessings forevermore. To go back to what we talked about at the beginning, with everyone's little interesting theories about how the world will end, from the weird ones, the aliens, the zombies, to the meteor, to the more recent claims of in a certain number of years, if we don't do something about climate, that we're all come to extinction. Sometimes you read those things and you think, how does any sane-minded person actually believe that? And then you've got to ask the question, how do they get a big group of people to believe that? It's not just one, one wacky individual. You see, there are groups, there's whole movements that get convinced by these things. Why? I'll tell you why. Because someone tells them a story with passion and urgency and those who hear it are so wrapped up and think, we must do something about it. Brothers and sisters, what we've been talking about in these past weeks isn't fairy tales, isn't hypothetical, isn't scare tactics. It is the reality of human history today and where it's headed for the future. Every single one of us will stand before the judge. All of us know that good gospel. All of us know if we're in relationship with Christ, know what he has done to set us free from that. I'll just hear again those words from Jesus. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen to be exposed. So often people want to know when Jesus returned, the timing. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Well, it does tell us one thing. It tells us that we don't know. But it does tell you the what, and it does tell you the why. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is prepared. Blessed is the one who has heard what Jesus has done and has come to cling on him as the only hope and has received the righteousness which comes from Christ alone. That that day is not a day to be feared, but a day to be looked forward to. When the completion of that salvation which has begun this earth, we will experience in all of its fullness. In a number of weeks, we'll be looking at chapters 21 and 22 and we see that picture of the new heavens and new earth when God's people will dwell with him for all eternity. There is the eternal blessing 
for those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But it's to be tragically cursed, eternally, those who would clothe themselves in anything else. And I say tragic for two reasons. One, tragic because of what eternally happens as the outcome. But if you were here this morning, what a greater tragedy it would be to hear what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue you and to save you and to do as we've heard in this passage, to just shake your fist at God and be angry with him. Don't be like that. Be like one who he describes as those who are blessed, those who can thank God that he sent Jesus Christ into the world, that we can call upon him for the forgiveness of our sins, and he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray and give thanks to him for that. Lord, it is admittedly difficult to read some parts of, of this book, not only because of the complexity of, uh, of understanding and interpreting, but also, too, because we deeply love those who are around us. And while we give you thanks for the salvation that we have in Christ, we grieve deeply for friends and family we know who don't know you. who have bought into that lie that you either don't exist or you're not powerful, you won't do the things you say you will do. God, we know we can't change a single person's heart, but we do know that your gospel is the power of God for salvation. and We do know that your Holy Spirit dwells in those who belong to you. Lord, give us a sense of urgency for this cause. If hundreds and thousands can rally around an extinction rebellion, how much more the people of God around the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that there is hope in the middle of this world that has so much what appears to be to the eye chaos and struggle. And we thank you that you are bringing all those things to a close one day. And we give you thanks. You are in control. You can be trusted. Help us to be faithful and to endure. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.